I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 92, or perhaps the handout today has Psalm 92 printed for you. So let's um, give our attention to the reading of the Word of God, and then we'll pray. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I will sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you this morning for the word. We thank you that it's infallible, authoritative. We thank you that it also brings us light where there would be darkness otherwise. We thank you above all that everything contained in Scripture would ultimately point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we sinful human beings actually have a Savior that you have sent from heaven. We are grateful for Christ and for all that he has done for us. And so even as we listen to uh, this word, as it's read, as we seek to open it up in terms of its truth, uh, lead us by your Holy Spirit and by your word to Christ himself, we would pray in his name. Amen. I, I want you to notice the title of the message this morning. It's, it's thankfulness unto God for his saving grace. And that's essentially the theme of what I want us to consider this morning. Uh, early on in my Christian life, and so I'm looking back and I'm saying almost 50 years ago, uh, in early in my college days, I read some prominent Christian writer uh, who made this statement. And I think I was reading Ephesians chapter 1, some kind of commentary. But he made this statement that we as Christians ought to give thanks to God every single day for our salvation that this ought to become a perpetual habit of the heart, that every day we would be thanking God for saving us. Now, I want us to see as we look at this psalm that that is at least one of the important truths that this psalm would present to us, that of giving thanks with respect to our salvation. Because I want us to treat what David says here from the fullness of what we see in Christ. And so the theme, once again, is going to be the theme of 
our essential purpose. That is, God has sought us to be those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, if we're going to be those who are going to worship in spirit and truth, we must give God thanks, worshipful thanks for who he is and for what he has done. Now, this psalm is easily divided into four sections, uh, four parts that we can characterize this way. Uh, First, verses one through four would direct us to God's character and to God's works. And then verses five through nine would direct us to God's mercy implicitly, but we'll bring that out, and then explicitly to his justice. Uh, Thirdly, verses 10 and 11 speak about God's personal dealings with us, or at least we can reason from David's experiences to our experiences in that way. And then finally, verses 12 to 15 uh, really speak to God's grand purpose for those that he has redeemed. These, these sections all give us a clearer picture of why we give thanks to God because of who he is and because of what he's done. Now, this week we can only actually cover the first two. That is, we can only cover the first two parts of this up through verse 9, and then, Lord willing, we come together next week and we'll look at verses 10 through 15. So this morning, verses 1 through 9, looking at thankfulness, the giving of thanks to God because of who he is and because of what he has done. So first, I want you to think about verses 1 through 4. Uh, these verses essentially focus on God's character and God's work. Uh, so David's showing believers that we give thanks to God again for who he is and for what he's done. Now, in verse 1 in particular, David is telling us that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. That's his statement. Now, this tells us that our giving thanks to God is good, and it is a good part of our worship. It's even an essential part of our worship to God. It's something that we ought to be doing. It ought to be part of our praise to God most high. First statement, very clearly in the indicative, indicative, it's good to give thanks to God. But then we go into verse 2, and we see that David establishes a kind of pattern that follows along in terms of the goodness of giving God this thanks. It's good to declare our gratitude to God as a morning and evening pattern of prayer. In other words, we might say that it's good to begin the day and that it's good to end the day with thanksgiving. And then in that verse, too, we see the key things that David is thankful for. Now, it's not the sum of everything, and yet what he says here really lays the foundation for everything in terms of our thanksgiving, because he references God's steadfast love and God's faithfulness. Now, in the mind of David, or if we were part of David's uh, Israelite community of worshipers, and we were listening to the psalm that David has written, we would immediately think of these characteristics, God's steadfast love, God's faithfulness, as connected to not only God's character, but connected to God's covenant, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Uh, These ideas, steadfast love, faithfulness of God, are central to God's covenant of grace. Think back to how God established his covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. God put Abraham, Abram at the time, God put him into this very deep sleep on the day that he made his covenant. 
And in that deep sleep, uh, uh, Abraham had a vision of a double symbol of God, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, uh, passing through a set of divided carcasses, the carcasses of five animals that that Abraham had slain and separated. The the these two things passing through these slain animals. Now, to the Jews, this was a ceremony that they understood quite well. Uh, in fact, the very language of it is called cutting a covenant. And it symbolized always the oath that the one who was making the covenant would actually make that oath to the one who was the recipient of that covenant. So God is making this oath to Abraham and, as he says, to Abraham and to his descendants, what is called a self-maledictory oath. That is to say, picture it this way, uh, God is saying to Abraham, let it be to me as to these animals if I should ever fail to keep this covenant with you. God pledged, God promised under oath that he would always love his people, steadfast love. He would always be faithful to his people, he would always keep his promise. And so what David is saying in Psalm 92 is that morning and evening, we ought to be giving God thanks for this covenant. Thanks for God's covenantal love and God's covenantal faithfulness. Because it is these characteristics of God connected to his covenant making that have both secured and also guaranteed our salvation. Further, you look at verse 3, and what David is telling us there in verse 3, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, he's essentially saying this, we ought to be singing of these things, music and melody, with these common stringed instruments. I want you to think about this, because this is an essential biblical truth. The music we love the most, the music we sing the most, testifies to the deepest loyalties and commitments and attitudes of our hearts. And that's not just the Bible that teaches this. One of the fascinating and interesting insights in Plato's Republic is the fact that Socrates teaches uh, that changes in music lead to the greatest change and how a city-state would seek to govern itself. Now, what he meant by this was that music reveals that part in the life of a citizenship. It reveals which part in the life of a citizenship. It re reveals which part of their culture that they cherish and desire the most. In other words, as a general insight, what people sing is a window into their true nature and values. And this is a valid observation. Socrates could see this by the light of nature, that what a people sing is a window into their own souls. And that is why scripture confirms and makes the same point. And so the question is, are the songs we singing given over to the thanksgiving and praising of God for his steadfast love and faithfulness? Do we sing the songs of our salvation? 
And David in his teaching here says that we should. And then we go on to verse 4. And in verse 4, David gives the reason. He gives the for this, the because. Why should we be thankful? And he says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. God's works caused David to sing for joy. David's active thinking on the works of God, the very things that David knew, the very things that David had experienced personally, these were the very things that stimulated gratitude in David's heart. Here was the basis of his thanksgiving and joy. Now, this connection in, that we see in David's life and in David's testimony here, gladness and joy with thanksgiving, uh, really makes us think of Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So what David says in verse 4, what Paul says makes it clear, this is God's will. What David teaches, Paul commands. We are to rejoice always in God. We are to pray always to God. We are to give thanks for all things in all circumstances to God. It is God's will that you and I would live worship-centered lives with hearts of gratitude for what God has done for us. And, of course, what God has done for us comes out of his character as the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He made his covenant in and through Christ in order to save us. And so out of his steadfast love and faithfulness, he has given us his Son so that whosoever believeth on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So when we thank God for his character and his work, we are necessarily led to what God has revealed about himself, about his character, and the work of his son. The believer's joy and gladness are always centered in what the Father and his steadfast love has done for us and the faithfulness of Christ. And this is the song of the believer's soul. So, to worship God in spirit and in truth, we must give God worshipful thanks for who he is and for what he has done for us in his Son. Now, I want us to consider now the second part of the psalm, verses 5 through 9, which will take us to uh, the mercy of God and the justice of God. And in particular, I want us to see here the great contrast between God's mercy in salvation and God's justice in eternal destruction. So verse 5 begins by echoing what David has already said previously. So David says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. Now, the new idea that David brings in here is the deepness of the thoughts of God, which are in fact revealed in the greatness of God's works. That is to say, God's works reveal the depths of his thoughts and plans and purposes. And by David acknowledging this, he's given God proper credit. He's counting God as God. 
he's acknowledging or he's stating a right understanding of God. Because it's important to know that the word translated thoughts doesn't refer to the thoughts of God's understanding, but to the thoughts of God's activity. This word refers to God's thoughts in terms of his purposes, his plans, his designs, his decrees. This word refers to God's thoughts as the foundation of all of creation and all of providence and all of redemption. And it's important to note, it's always the case that God's works and God's thoughts are in complete harmony. They're always in sync. In fact, God's thoughts and plans and purposes and decrees, they always actually determine God's works. And for this, David is thankful. David is very glad that he knows and understands this. He's very glad that he knows this because of what he's going to say next. And so we look at verses 6 and 7, and here begins the great contrast. David mentions the stupid man, the one who's foolish. Know right away, these are not intellectual descriptions. These are moral descriptions. David is speaking about the one who is morally stupid, the one who is morally foolish. It is they who do not understand the purposes of God. And what they don't understand is described in verse 7, that the, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evil doers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. The wicked do not see moral blindness, that even though for this worldly season of life they may have worldly success, they may have worldly advantage, it is temporary in the light of eternity. Their commitment to oppose God will lead to their doom and destruction that will last forever. You see, because they don't see their sins bringing judgment upon them now, they reason that their sins will not bring judgment upon them ever. And this is their moral foolishness. This is their moral stupidity. And then in verses 8 and 9, David paints this great contrast. God is on high forever, but his enemies are going to perish and be scattered forever. So David's thankful for the, wor for the works of God's mercy, which have saved him. But he's also worshipful toward the very deep thoughts of God, the purposes and the decree of God, by which the wicked will come under the justice of God. And under the justice of God, they will be doomed to destruction forever. Now, that's the great contrast that is presented in these verses between the mercy of salvation and the justice of eternal destruction. But this bears some further biblical thinking for this reason. Our thankfulness for our salvation gets deeper when we have a deeper realization of what we have been saved from. And therefore, I want us to think biblically and deeply about the doom and destruction that David mentions. 
helped and informed by what Jesus and the New Testament also have taught us. And here's what I want you to notice first. In God's judgment and doom, in their eternal destruction, as we see in verse 9, all evildoers will be scattered. This is to point out that the morally stupid do not realize that when God executes his final justice upon them, and they are cast into hell, they are not going to find themselves in the company of those who have sinned like them. They are going to be scattered. The New Testament descriptions of hell would lead us to understand that it is a solitary experience. Those in hell have no other person to ever communicate with. And yet it's one of the mocking responses of non-believers that they often will say, well, I would rather go to hell rather than to heaven because hell is where all my friends are going to be. There is no friendship. There is no fellowship. There is no community. There are no other persons to share misery with in hell. It is the place of weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the place of utter darkness. Now, here on earth, those who oppose God can have a collective power over the weak and the powerless, a collective power over believers. But And because of that collective power, the, the wicked can sprout up quickly like grass, and they can flourish in this worldly sense. All of that vanishes in the execution of God's eternal judgment, because hell is the place of deepest punishment. But further, it's the place where every sinner faces the truth of his own evil nature, stripped of his earthly ability to repress the truth. Stripped of that ability, he's going to be incapable of having that kind of self-congratulatory judgment about himself in which he thinks of himself and justifies himself as a pretty good person. You and I will often marvel when we read of some heinous crime that a person has committed. How could such a person live with himself? What we mean is, how could such a person not loathe himself for how despicable he is for in his lies and the harm he's inflicted upon other people? Because as people of conscience, it seems to us almost impossible that other human beings can actually live with their crimes and live with their depraved actions. But the reason we can, as the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, is because they have the ability to repress and to suppress the truth about God and the truth about their own actions so that their conscience no longer performs the function of self-accusation. They have sinned their consciousness in many ways into sleep. Now, that's what Paul sets up for us in Romans chapter 1, that in his wickedness, man suppresses the truth about God and practices all manner of sin and moral depravity, even though, as it says in verse 32 of Romans chapter 1, that they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice these things deserve to die. Yet, 
they not only do them, but they give approval to those who do them as well, which also includes themselves. They can live with the worst sorts of crimes and depravity because they approve of themselves doing such things. But I want you to imagine the nature of hell. Imagine a place of unending duration in which a person's conscience can no longer be sinfully suppressed. Where God does not allow sin to play games with the conscience. When God no longer allows sin to repress the truth. And where because of this, that person in hell has a moral compass that is perfectly alive and always points back to himself in terms of his sin and depravity. Imagine that God and his justice in that way restores the conscience with all of its powers to self-accuse, with all of its memory photographically perfect with respect to every sin a person has ever committed against others and every sin against God. Imagine the conscience fully alive in that way. And imagine the wicked man having to face all of these terrible crimes that he has committed, all the evils that he has done, every sin he's ever performed, and all he can hear inside his own mind is one condemning thought after another. Imagine a person for the first time in his existence being fully alive to his own sin and fully incapable of repenting and fully incapable of feeling true sorrow, only capable of feeling the condemning moral weight of it all. You see, we see a tiny picture of what this is like in Psalm 32, where we had David's description of the weight of a guilty conscience, where he cries out that it was like the burning fever heat of summer as it zapped and stressed his body, body and soul and heart and mind. He was knowing his sin. He says, my sin is ever before me. And the experience was crushing, painfully crushing. Yet what David experienced was not hell. Because as awful as this was for David, David still knew God. David still had God's mercy to count on. But the man in hell has no hope for God's mercy. He is alive to his sin vividly, but without any ability to repent. And he has no ability to feel godly and genuine sorrow. Hell is the place where God strips away every sinful psychological defense mechanism that allows a wicked person to shift the blame onto someone else. All he feels is the consuming fire of the condemning moral weight of his own guilt and sin. And we have every reason in Scripture to see that hell, eternal separation, is that kind of a place where a human being's true, fallen, and evil nature exists before the standard of God's holy justice and truth with all of this condemnation and wrath 
a place where there is no mercy at all. Now, I paint this picture as vividly as I can because I am convinced in my study of human nature, I am convinced in, in the hundreds and hundreds of, of, of talks with people and counseling with people, there is no worse kind of pain than the psychological pain and burden of guilt for things you have done that you cannot undo. And I have talked with people who cannot undo those things. And it's not because they love God at all that they feel this way. They simply feel devastated that they have no power to have been better people. Not for the glory of God, but even for the glory of themselves. They have been crushed by their own guilt. There is no pain worse than to be devoid of hope, to be totally in despair because the weight of guilt is so heavy and you can do nothing about it at all. And all you hear in your mind is that it was your fault. It's your to blame. You have done this. You can lay it at no one else's feet. This belongs to you. Now, a meditation of this sort on this biblical picture of the destiny of those who are doomed to destruction forever can only increase our gratitude for salvation. To know and understand that the Lord Jesus Christ in his death upon the cross uttered these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ forsaken so that we might be accepted. Christ enduring something of infinite weight upon him that you and I, you and I will never, by God's grace, ever experience. Christ bearing the weight of God's wrath and sin that should have been ours, we are delivered. Meditating upon the awfulness of hell can only give us a greater and greater gratitude for the salvation that we have received in Christ. So I say, to worship God in spirit and in truth, we must give God daily, morning and night, worshipful thanks for who he is and for all that he's done for us in the person and the work of his Son. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to delight in all that Christ has done for us. Help us to see the horrors and misery of hell. Help us to understand the awfulness of being self-condemned under your judgment. Help us to see what it would be like, the awfulness of bearing the weight of our own sin forever. Help us to see Christ bearing that awful load for us. 
Help us to see that he became the man of sorrows, that we might become the people of joy and thanksgiving forevermore. Help us then, Lord, in looking to Christ, give you thanks again for our salvation. In his name we pray. Amen.